Good to see you all tonight. Trust you're having a good week. And as I often say, if you're not, you're in the right place, right? Place of prayer, place of Bible study. Let God speak to us and, and we speak to God. Uh, we are in the book of Philippians tonight. We want to look at uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And uh, thank you for sitting more towards the front so you can see my eyeballs and I can see yours. That's, that's kind of good, but, you know... I understand where we have to sit. But anyway, uh, we want to look at, as they say, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, Paul's prayer for the Philippian saints. And let me lead us in prayer here. Lord, we do thank you for the privilege to assemble in Jesus' name tonight to study the Word of God. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. You are still speaking today. You speak through the Word of God. And uh, so we want to have ears to hear what you're saying to us, uh, instruction for living and those principles that you have for us from the Word of God. So help me to teach you accurately and clearly. We pray for the uh, Awana uh, ministry ongoing, youth group ministry. Uh, Thank you for all those who serve in this capacity. Pray that it be a fruitful night. Keep everybody free from getting hurt or anything like that. And just pray that everything would go smoothly and it would be a fruitful evening for your glory. Commit it to you now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, Philippians is one of the, what we call the prison epistles. And uh, how can you remember the prison epistles? You know, there's kind of four little epistles of Paul's that go together, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, right? Those four kind of go together as far as size. Now, one of those is not one of the prison epistles. You know which one it is? Think early. Galatians is not one of the prison epistles. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And then the other one is the book of Philemon. That's right. So those four little epistles, what we call the the prison epistles. Philippians is a thank you letter. Paul is writing to a supporting church. He loves them. They've been with him in the gospel from the very time they got saved. And so they they are precious to him. And we see that as he starts out the verse or the chapter, rather, verse 3, saying, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. These people had a special place in the heart of Paul. And so he's writing a thank you letter to them for their fellowship in the gospel, for their support of his gospel ministry and, and what they mean to him, and kind of bringing them up to speed on what's going on in his life, even in prison. So uh, let's begin with uh, the first slide. No? (laughs) Is it me? Wait. Okay, hang on. This is this is it. I just don't see it on my TV back here. That's my problem. See, I'm used to this now. I used to have to look back this way. Now I'm spoiled. I want to see it right in front of me. But Yes, that's true. It can. <laughs> anyway, uh, note here, uh, the theme is rejoice in the Lord. Uh, joy. And we are in that beginning uh, part of the book here. Chapter 1, 1 through 11, uh, salutation and opening prayer. And so he's already told them that he is praying for them. And uh, now he's going to really express how he is praying for them as we get into our study tonight. 
Okay, uh, let's uh, have somebody uh, read verse 8 for us. We'll get started there. Hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, verse 8, who wants to read that for us? Yes, Michelle. Okay, I like this verse because this is maybe one of the few places in the New Testament where we kind of see a place for emotions, right? Uh, Think about love, and we often emphasize love is not so much emotions as it is an act of the will, and that is a tremendous emphasis in the New Testament. Uh, But there's affection in, in the mix here. And notice he states it strongly, for God is my witness. This is the language of uh, a solemn affirmation, almost like an oath, like, uh, for God is my witness. God knows my heart. This is true. So he appeals to God. And it's an expression of how much he loves them and appreciates them. And so he says, God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. This... uh, phrase, uh, how greatly I long for you, is, is intense. Uh, this uh, greatly I long for is really a, a term that was used of athletic events, of an athlete striving, uh, straining to win. So it's, a, it's intensity, and it being expressed here is intensity of emotion. God is my witness how greatly I long for you all, uh, for them as a group, Uh, Again, he's thinking about them as a church family and how he appreciates them. And then he says, with the affection of Jesus Christ. Literally, we don't speak this way, but the Greek word here literally means in the bowels of of Christ Jesus. Now, we wouldn't say that, right? I I wouldn't write that in a letter to you. (laughs) You might take it wrong, right? But uh, here's what uh, MacArthur has to say. What's that? What's that? Yep. Well, that's literal. That's a very literal uh, rendering. Uh, John MacArthur says this. uh, The word affection literally refers to internal organs, uh, which are the part of the body that reacts to intense emotion. It became the strongest Greek word to express compassionate love, a love involved in one's entire being. So that's really the, the idea you know, uh, the internal, uh, internal affections there that are in view. He's really expressing tender feelings of Christ's love, really a supernatural love. And I think it's, in effect, kind of saying he's so in touch with the, the heart of Jesus Christ that he feels towards them the tender feelings that Jesus Christ has for them. Notice he says, uh, with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about Jesus Christ, we don't often think about affections in that sense, emotions, But here it is, uh, right here in the text. Uh, Heartfelt emotions for these people. Now, love is more than emotions, but it certainly includes emotions. And uh, there's certainly a place for tender feelings of affection as part of God's love. And and we see that here. All right. Any other thoughts before we go on to our next verse here? Anything else? Okay. Very good. Let's have somebody read uh, verse 9. Who wants to read verse 9 for us? Albert? Okay, very good. So he's praying for them, and he's praying that their love may abound still more and more. The Greek word here is agape. It's the intense word for love. 
uh, you know, you got phileo, agape, there's overlap at some points. But consistently, uh, the most intense word for love is agape. And so it, it is commonly referred to in, in relationship to God's kind of love. It's a sacrificial giving. It seeks the other person's highest good. It puts others before self. All of these kind of descriptions fit in here. And uh, it's really supernatural. I don't think we can of our own selves really love with agape love. Uh, it's really a supernatural thing. We can't do it within our own strength. In, in fact, uh, we know from Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's not the fruit of our spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love. So it is a defining trait for God's people. In fact, if uh, you, you are a child of God, the expectation is that you will love. Christ is a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for, for another. What's the idea of a new commandment? Is it a new commandment? Wasn't that in the Old Testament to love one another? Yeah, it was, that, was in the, that was in the Old Testament. It's in Leviticus 19, right? I mean, it's right there. It's, a, it's not a new commandment in, in that sense as far as just loving one another. What makes this new? Ah, Christ himself is the ultimate example here, the ultimate standard, which is a higher standard than just loving your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's one thing. This is a higher standard, and therefore it's a new command. And it's by this new commandment, not the old one, it's by this new commandment that you are to be known as his disciples. This, I think, really is the defining trait of true believers in the New Testament, our love for one another. And then First uh, John 3.14, we know that we pass from life to death, or death to life, rather. <laughs> we want to keep it going the right way. Uh, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. That's how we know it. He who does not love his brother abides in death. You know, if you don't have anything, any love for Christians, it just shows you where you're at. This is kind of the defining reality according to 1 John uh, chapter 3. And then chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love is the fruit, fruit of the Spirit as we have seen. And if you're really born of God, this is going to be the fruit. Uh, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So this is a very strong emphasis in the New Testament. But here he's praying not that they will have love, but that it will abound still more and more. Uh, love is a big thing. It's the cure for everything that's wrong in the church, really. You know, there was a church at Corinth that had lots of problems, right? I mean, was there infighting at Corinth? Yeah. Was there immorality being to tolerated at Corinth? Yeah. Was there lawsuits going on at Corinth? Yeah. There wasn't much that was right about the church at Corinth. And they're fighting over the showy gifts. You know, look at me. Uh, watch what I can do. And right in the middle of that whole emphasis on gift use and their problems, what is in the middle of that whole context in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Well, it's the love chapter. And it's kind of like he says, I show you a more excellent way. The more excellent way is the way of love. That's the emphasis here, uh, that their love may abound still more and more. Uh, the idea of abounding is overflowing. It's a word used of a, of a river that's out of the banks, uh, of, out of its banks. It's overflowing. 
So the idea here is not that we have kind of like the, the minimal amount, but that it be abounding, be abounding, like a glass that's overflowing with water, just gushing out of our lives. Uh, so live, live uh, in that way. And there's always room for more growth. No matter how far you've come in your love life, I'm talking about uh, the fruit of the Spirit, there's room for, for, there's room for more, uh, to abound still more and more. But then notice there's a qualifier. He doesn't just stop there. I think it's very important that we understand love properly. And he says that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So he qualifies this here. He's not just talking about an emotional thing. Uh, he's not just talking about uh, being sentimental. Uh, you know, like, you know, love just goes along with everything and, you know, we don't take any stands. No, there's a qualifier here. And it's in, in knowledge and all discernment. Now, the word for knowledge here is the intense word. It's an intense word for knowledge. The idea of full knowledge. Full knowledge. And uh, just a few uh, slides here. Paul calls for an intelligent love, right? He's combining, did you see that? He's combining love with knowledge. You know what you got there? It's an intelligent, a biblically intelligent love. Not just a mindless, sentimental, gushing love, which you can find in almost any out-of-balance, emotionally-driven church these days. True God-like love loves in accordance with God's truth. Intelligent love. It weighs everything through the knowledgeable grid of Scripture. It involves critical thinking in a sanctified sense. So this is a good qualifier. Love according to knowledge. Example. Today, people are very quick to say God's people are unloving if they take a stand against immorality concerning fellow professing Christians. They say, if you really love these people, you would just accept them and not judge them. However, knowledge says God is holy and calls his people to holiness. And this cannot be tolerated in the fellowship. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says we shouldn't even so much as eat with a professing Christian who is living in immorality. So in love, we hold them accountable and call them to repentance. You think that's loving? uh, To hold them accountable and call them to repentance? I would say biblically it is. It's uh, love according to knowledge, but will not fellowship with them in their sin. That is love in accordance with knowledge. This is about uh, believers. You know, we're loving one another as believers, a holy family. Well, what about uh, unbelievers? On the other hand, love in accordance with knowledge says to the unbeliever in immorality to come over for dinner so we can reach out to you with the gospel. But we do not condone your sin. In both cases, there is no fellowship. But there is accountability applied to the first and invitation to the latter. This is loving in accordance with knowledge. It is knowledgeably applying the scriptures for the good of the person involved, whether it be tough love or evangelistic love. In both cases, I think there's love being applied, but it's according to knowledge. Yes, Mm-hmm. He made us responsible, is accountable for our own sin. And, and so we have to do the same for, for people that, that we love. Yeah. And, and we do that without the Lord's help. Right. Right. Okay. Anyone else?
Ja, wenn's Ja. That's right. Reconciliation. Yeah, right. A amen. Yeah, it, it gets down to the tone of what we're trying to accomplish here. And uh, it is interesting, you know, like if you say, boy, I'm not going to even so much as eat with you. That doesn't come off loving. I don't think even a lot of Christians would see that. And yet I don't think that's in contradiction with what holiness is all about, as we see. There is a holy accountability within the family of God, which is in keeping with true love, the ultimate good of that person. And so it's, it's not really loving just to let people go on their wayward way to their destruction. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, anyone else? Yeah. Mac? I've always looked at it as, you know, true love for an individual is to help, help them understand that they have a terminal disease. And if they don't get that solved, it doesn't matter how well you do in this life, then what? Yep. Well, that's true, especially in relationship to the unbeliever. Also, application for the believer as far as, you know, the judgment seat of Christ, right? In both cases, there's still a then what? Yeah, there is. But I guess the real rub that I'm really kind of pressing on a little bit tonight is, what if the believer says, okay, thank you for sharing. I'm going to continue to come to your potluck dinners and live in my gross sin. Now what? Then you, then you take I think true love does. I think true love does, but I think a lot of Christians are kind of reluctant to do that. We're going to kind of just smooth it over. We don't want to say anything. You know, they're going to leave the church if we take a stand. Uh, you know, that kind of thought is out here. So, yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Yes, Michelle. I have a question. What if it's in your own family? Boy, that gets tricky. I will admit that gets tricky. Um, yeah. I... I used to be a younger pastor, and I had, long, I had very clear answers on everything. That's tricky, though. Uh, you know, as far as family, uh, like if you're having a holiday and the whole family's coming, um, I think I would make it very clear to them, uh, yeah, you're still a part of our family, but we do not condone this. We can't have fellowship, you know. You're out of fellowship, still part of the family in that sense, so we're really kind of cutting hairs there, but um, I, I, yeah, it's tough. That, that's kind of a, a tough, tough thing right there. But um, I don't know. There's still your, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Well, that's true. Ultimately, that's true. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of situations out here, uh, and I've dealt with a lot of them, and it's, it's, it's tough. It, it can be very difficult. Um, I, I guess we pray for wisdom. I don't want to compromise the Scripture, that's for sure. And 1 Corinthians 5.11 would seem to be cut and dry, really. You know, if, you, if you're claiming you're a believer, I'm not even going so much as eat with you. 
And uh, I probably would want to lean that way. Even with family members, I have taken some of those stands. And yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, it gets really tough because sometimes these people are professing believers. We don't think they're real believers, but they claim they're believers. You get into all that kind of stuff. That's really what I'm talking about, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, I guess, you know, when you think about church discipline, we take you at your profession, right? So if you're professing you're a believer, we're going to hold you accountable like a believer. Uh, yeah, so it, it gets, you know, but yeah. I agree. It's tough. Not easy. All right. Anything else? Uh, we're, we're praying for knowledge here, right? According to love. <laughs> yep. That's right. Yep. That's exactly it. That's exactly right. And so let's go to there. Uh, and all discernment. Uh, praying that their love would abound still more and more in knowledge and uh, all discernment. Uh, the idea of discernment is perception, uh, you know, making a judgment call in terms of what is morally right versus what is wrong, uh, discriminating, uh, not going along with what's uh, wrong, uh, and so forth. Um, let's see here. People often say, Thou shalt not judge. Uh, not even knowing where this verse is found, and they certainly don't know the context in Matthew 7, which really is speaking against hypocritical judgment. In other places, such as in 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul instructs the church to judge sin in their midst. Often when someone says, thou shalt not judge, what they mean is, don't be discerning. Don't apply the truth to my situation. So uh, (laughs) we want to be discerning. Uh, Paul's praying that their love would be discerning. And, uh, yes, uh, thou shalt not judge, but that comes with a a context there in chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 7. Being loving does not mean you check your brains at the door. Just saying. It's in keeping with knowledge, right? Yep. In fact, it means that you you, uh, love thoughtfully in accordance with biblical truth. You draw lines in terms of what you can go along with and what you cannot. Uh, there is a delicate balance in the scriptures. We cannot err on either side. We must not compromise love, and we must not compromise truth. We love within the sphere of truth, and we share the truth within the sphere of love. So, uh, not always as easy as it might seem uh, sometimes, uh, making those uh, discernment calls. And uh, doing the right thing in every situation. That's why we need prayer. Paul's praying for them in that regard, that they would grow in their understanding and their knowledge in, in regard to these things. All right, any other thoughts? Good input. Anything else? Okay, let's press on. Let's have somebody read verse 10. Who wants to read that for us? Yeah, John? Okay, so the idea to approve is, is to, to test it with the idea of approving it. Uh, so it's the idea of, of an evaluation process with the intent to prove it uh, to be true. Uh, let's see here. Uh, the idea in verse 9 seems to relate more to matters of black and white discernment. 
related to the issue of sin or what is clearly right and wrong. These are moral absolutes spelled out in the Scriptures for us. It's just a matter of knowing the Bible and properly applying it. There's a lot of those kinds of issues. However, approving things that are excellent in verse 10 seems more to relate to choosing the best things, the best route, the best way over the secondary, the eternal over the temporary. So there's a, there's a fine little nuance difference here, that you may approve the things that are excellent. And, and that's, that's a great prayer. Uh, I don't pray that you just kind of skate by. You're kind of on the edge there, kind of a little risky, but you still don't have any, It's not exactly wrong. The question because, is it wise? Is it the way of excellence uh, that you may approve the things that are excellent? Literally, uh, things which differ. Things which differ. And the idea here is between the superior and the inferior, between the primary and the secondary, between the excellent and the mediocre. Uh, the idea is, what is best? I'm praying that you will know what is best. Approve those things that are best. Uh, approve it uh, and, and apply it to your life. Um, certain things may be allowed, but is it best? But is it best? Uh, you know, I guess I could eat junk food every day, somehow justify it, right? You can eat everything with Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, it's probably not going to be good for me to do that, though. Uh, what's best? Uh, Gramacki says this, the present tense of the verb indicates that a believer must constantly reassess his opinions and lifestyle. Present tense. As situations in life change, so do the things which differ. Thus, this analysis must be maintained daily. So we're always evaluating what's, what's best in, in my life. And then uh, I use some examples here in matters of language. Some Christians use coarse slang to communicate. Can you think of any example? Let's not go there. Uh, is that the way of excellence? Uh, you know, we're supposed to watch everything that's coming out of our mouth. Uh, they may argue that it's not out-and-out out profanity, but is it the way of excellence? Is it the best? In matters of entertainment, some will say, well, I personally, uh, I don't personally condone it, but, it's, but is it the way of excellence? Is it something Jesus would approve of? Would, would you take Jesus with you to this activity? Matters of dress, is this the best choice in terms of modesty, or is it on the risky side? Uh, in matters of how I use my time, is it superior use of my time to sleep in on Sunday morning? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Uh, or would the way of excellence dictate that I be in the place of worship? That was kind of a given, isn't it? In, in matters of priorities, where do I place the emphasis in in terms of giving of myself, my time, my resources. Is Jesus Christ, his gospel, and the fellowship of his saints the priority, or are they very secondary? This is the kind of things we're dealing with here in terms of that you may approve the things that are excellent. Uh, his prayer for them is that they would be walking in the way of the excellent. And I think of the way of excellence is what's going to matter on Judgment Day? Uh, what is Christ going to say, well done? That was the way of excellence. You were walking in it consistently. That's what we want to do, live in light of eternity. Life is full of choices. And uh, sometimes you have choice, right or wrong. And that's kind of where we camp a lot of times as Christians. And yeah, it's wrong to commit adultery. Shouldn't do that. that. That's really clear, black and white. But then there's a whole bunch of choices here between, okay, eh, probably be okay, and the way of excellence. And here's emphasizing the way of excellence. He's praying that they will more and more 
go that way. You know, there were some things even in the Old Testament that Moses permitted that was like, that's really not the best. But Moses did permit it. Uh, we want to go the way of excellence, not just that which I can kind of technically get away with. Uh, and then he says uh, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Uh, the word sincere means unmixed, uh, pure, genuine. Uh, it's, this word sincere is, is an interesting word because it's really kind of a, a mixture of the word son and the, and the words to judge. Uh, note my slide up here. In the ancient world, dishonest pottery dealers would often fill the cracks of inferior pots with wax before glazing and painting them. Just looking at it, you would think it was a perfect pot. But if you held it up to the sun, you would see if there were wax-filled cracks in it. As time went on, honest dealers would mark their genuine pottery, sign Sarah, meaning without wax. So the question is, are you a crackpot Christian? Or are you genuine? One might look pretty good on the outside, but on closer examination of God's light, they might be found to be applying lots of wax. The believer's judgment day will bring out the wax. Be real. Be sincere. That's really what he's uh, praying for them here, that you may be sincere. Choose the way of excellence. Not just kind of waxed over, but uh, that you may be sincere. And then he says, and without offense. Without offense. This is the word blameless. And uh, it's used in a context of, of don't be a stumbling block. Blameless in, in not causing other people to stumble. Uh, don't be a bad example. The same word is used here in a couple references here. 1 Corinthians 10.32. Give no offense either to the Jews, the Greeks, or to the church of God. Don't be a stumbling block uh, is the idea. Acts 24.16. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, being a stumbling block, that's, that's the idea here, uh, that you may be sincere and without offense. How long? Well, till the day of Christ. That's the same day we saw back in verse 6 when he says, being confident of this very thing that he has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He brings up this day of Jesus Christ again. And that's significant because this is the judgment day for believers. The believer's judgment day before the Bema seat of Christ where he's going to evaluate your life and my life and he's going to reward us accordingly. So this is the day of Christ uh, when we will be evaluated. Uh, we're not being judged as far as our sin, as far as salvation. Our sin was taken care of on the cross once and for all. Uh, it's not our salvation. We're already, we're already believers. We're already saved. The issue here is rewards. And what is Christ looking for? Uh, what Paul prays about are things that are going to matter on Judgment Day. A review of Paul's prayer items uh, is revealing. He is going to evaluate the quality of our, our Christian love life. He's going to evaluate the quality of our discernment regarding choices of right and wrong. He's going to evaluate the quality of our choices of priorities related to excellence. He's going to evaluate the quality of our sincerity. And he's going to evaluate the quality of our example. Uh, were we a stumbling block? Uh, those are good things to think about in light of uh, the coming day of Christ. Because these are the things that are going to come up. All right. Uh, other thoughts? Yes, Michael. So, 
Well, that's a great question, Michael. One of these days we're going to get up here and have you teach, Michael. You come up with such great questions. <laughs> no, that, that is a great question, and I don't know that there's a totally formalized answer here. Uh, I think we handle it with grace. Uh, we give space, especially if we're thinking we're the mature one. <laughs> you know, you do give space. And uh, I, I think we, we, if, the, if it's really out of line, we bring them back to the Word, bring them back to principles from the Word. But there are those areas where there's legitimate differences of opinion b- between believers. And how do we handle that? Well, there are areas like Paul says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. I think you give grace for that. You give space. And, uh, you know, you can't just force everybody into your pigeonhole, say, this is how it is. Um, I myself have changed my mind on a lot of things through the years. I've grown. I've matured. So I think we do, in Christian love, give space and give grace, uh, especially in the areas of excellence. And we pray. You know, it's not like Paul's just hammering them over every little thing here, but he's praying for their excellence to, to grow in that way. So that is a great question. I wish I had more of a refined answer for you, but I think that's an area where you do give grace You allow for maturity. As a pastor, I see all levels of maturity all the time. And uh, the goal is to keep, hopefully, bring people along to where they're moving along towards maturity, towards more excellence. And so, and uh, and you don't want to do that in a legalistic way. You want the Holy Spirit to bring them along. So, yes? Yeah. Right. Yeah, you kind of. You're right. You kind of deal with every situation uh, for what it is, and you pray for wisdom yourself in dealing with that. Um, so, and there's there are areas even where mature Christians don't even agree. <laughs> I dare say there's not a person out here that's going to agree with me on everything. I don't know why you wouldn't, but. Uh, you know, we're just we're not going to agree on everything. All of us elders don't agree on everything. We kind of see things a little different sometimes. So there is some grace. That, there has to be some grace that is given there. If not, it'd be like pretty soon we're going to be a church of one. I'm going to be standing here. Nobody agrees with everything I say. So there's definitely got to be some grace. All right. Yes, I'm sorry. Too close, Mac. Yeah. Well, that's true, and that's very true. There's all kinds of things, even on the scene today with COVID, where Christians have different... Even today, I had a long conversation with a brother. He's got strong convictions on a certain thing. And it's like I say, I, I told him, I said, you know, hey, as a pastor, I am not going there. Uh, I am going... I am the pastor of a lot of people who have different perspectives here. And uh, preference... Okay, let every man be fully persuaded his own mind. That's part of the scripture here too. So, um, but I do think, you know, Paul's kind of making a distinction between, uh, like he talks about uh, discernment and knowledge and all discernment, more black and white issues. And then the way of excellence where, okay, technically you maybe could do that, but is it really the way of excellence in the the broad scheme of things? Um, I don't want to get into too many examples there lest we go down bunny trails. But, yeah. All right. Uh, so, yes, Bill? It was instant media. 
Amen. That's well said. Amen, brother. All right. Anyone else? Okay. Very good. Let's finish out tonight. Verse 11. Who wants to read verse 11 for us? Yeah, Vince. Wow, that's a great way to end this. Uh, being filled. You don't just dabble with this. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Uh, your, that your life would be f- full uh, of the fruits of righteousness. Uh, the fruits of righteousness are uh, right living according to God's right standards. Uh, conformity to holiness. Uh, I really like the idea of here of uh, Christ-like character. That's the idea. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Christ-like character. That this would define our lives. And he says, which are by Jesus Christ. Yes, there is an emphasis on human responsibility here. That you may approve. That you may be sincere. As we saw back in verse 10. But here notice he talks about the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ which would indicate that it's Jesus Christ who is behind these fruits of righteousness. You can't produce it within yourself. It only happens uh, by Jesus Christ uh, with his help. And uh, the idea is not that we try our hardest in our own strength to copy his life, but rather that he lives his life through us. Now, as believers, we have his life inside us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. His power is available to us, and the key word for us to remember is dependence. Christ said in John 15, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. It brings me back to this key word, dependence. And so we, want to, we have to depend on, on Christ, uh, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. I'm going to need his help to, to live this way. And then he says, to the glory and praise of God. Our motive is not self-living. Uh, it's to the glory of God, to the glory and praise of God. That's the whole idea. We are to reflect his character. We are to put him on display. Uh, the fruits of righteousness are to be seen in, in our lives. And then finally, uh, the glory of God magnifies God for who he is, and the praise of God worships him for what he has done. Paul in these verses gives us an excellent model of how we should pray for fellow believers. Paul in these verses gives an excellent summary of what should characterize our lives as believers. In light of the day, we will stand before Jesus Christ and give an accounting of our lives. Uh, Boy, that's a great way to pray for people. Did you notice one thing that's missing in his uh, prayer here for them? He's not praying for their health, wealth, and prosperity physically, is he? Now, I don't, it's not wrong to pray about these things. Give us our daily bread is part of how the Lord taught us to pray. But there's a real emphasis on eternity here. The way of excellence in light of eternity as brought out till the day of Christ. So, um, yeah, in all of our praying for one another, let's be praying for our, our spiritual lives above all else. Because that's the thing that's of utmost importance uh, certainly will be on Judgment Day. Yes, Vince.
Well, not totally. Are are you saying it's Jesus Christ who is doing it, and and what's our what's our role in there? I see. Yeah, and, and I don't know if I'd make too much of a, a distinction between the, the fruits of righteousness and righteousness. I mean, I think the, the key idea here is the fruits of righteousness, right? Uh, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. I mean, that's his concern for them. That's his prayer. So uh, the fruits of righteousness would seem to go together. Yeah. Well, there's your, maybe your question. What are the fruits produced by? Is that your question? Are the fruits produced by uh, righteousness or are they produced by Jesus Christ? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and it, it might be a fine nuance where all of the above are true theologically, right? I mean, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I don't know if I'm prepared to answer it here. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question. Yeah, Kurt. Oh, there you go. Go for it. Okay, why don't you summarize that for us? <laughs> Is he talking about the... Okay, the fruit righteousness produces, which is by Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, he stated that the fruit righteousness produces... Yeah, I still think we're kind of getting into some fine nuances. Yeah, 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 kind of. All right, very good, though. I appreciate that, Vince. That's good thoughtfulness. All right, anyone else? Okay, let's share some prayer requests. Everybody have a prayer sheet? I've got a few up here.